This week on the show, we have OpenBSD firewalling Windows 10. That's nice, interesting. NetBSD's return to Ptrace. We have a TCP alternative backoff algorithm for you. And the BSD poetic license reading that we're going to do in the show later on. As well as Asia BSDCon 2018 videos available for you to watch on YouTube. As well as this week's episode of BSD. Now. Episode 329, The Return of P-Trace, uh, recorded on the 28th of March, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Great to have you with us this week. We have interesting headlines, as always, for you. The first one is preventing Windows 10 and untrusted software from having full access to the Internet using OpenBSD. That's over at uh, ibm.com slash developerworks. Yes, uh-huh. uh, which is not the first place I think of when I expect, uh, you know, when I'm looking for OpenBSD tutorials. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your first uh, source to go to, typically, but yeah, it's, it's, it's nevertheless interesting. Yes, uh, so they say, while setting up one of my development laptops uh, to port some software to Windows 10, I noticed that Windows was doing crazy things like installing and updating apps and games by default after the initial setup. Um, the one I noticed in particular was Candy Crush Soda Saga, which, uh, for those who don't know, is some cheesy little puzzle game originally designed for consumer cell phone devices. Uh, I honestly did not uh, want that software anywhere near my development machine. Uh, it's also been reported that Windows 10 now uh, updates core system software without notifying the user. Um, well, maybe that's fine for home users. Uh, surely this destroys any vague deterministic behavior uh, on the development machine, which, you know, is kind of useful for testing, right? Anyway, so in their opinion, making Windows 10 by default almost useless for a development environment. So uh, they took to solving that problem uh, with OpenBSD. So they decided instead to start from scratch, but this time to set the inbuilt Windows firewall to be very restrictive and allow um, only a few select programs to communicate. In this case, all I really wanted uh, to be online was Firefox, Subversion, and the PuTTY SSH client. To my astonishment, or amusement, uh, found out that the Windows firewall could be modified to give access very easily by programs during installation, usually because this task needs to be done with admin privileges. It also seems that the Windows uh, Store apps can change the Windows firewall settings at any point. One way to get around this issue would be to install a third-party firewall uh, that most software will not have knowledge about, but thus, um, and not attempt to break through. However, the only decent firewall um, that the author had used was Sygate Pro, which unfortunately is no longer supported uh, for recent operating systems. The, the latest version was for Windows 2003. So instead, I decided to trap Windows 10 and all of its uh, rogue updaters uh, behind a virtual firewall running OpenBSD. This effectively provided me with a full-blown uh, firewall appliance. From here, I could then allow specific software I trusted through the firewall via a proxy in a safe, controlled, and deterministic manner. Uh, for other interested developers and security-conscious users, and for my own reference, I've constructed the steps here. So uh, first and foremost, you want to disable the Windows DHCP service. You don't want it to be giving out addresses. 
Uh, this is so no IP can be attained on any interface. This effectively stops any communications with any network on the host system. This can be done by running the services uh, admin plugin with admin privileges and stopping and disabling the service called DHCP client. So now Windows will not auto-configure its network. Next, we install or enable your favorite virtualization software. Uh, they've tested this with both VirtualBox and Hyper-V. Note that on non-server versions of Windows, in order to get Hyper-V working, your processor must also support the SLAT feature. Uh, so they recommend VirtualBox to get around any arbitrary restrictions. Mm -hmm. So step three is to install OpenBSD in the VM. Uh, they decided on using Hyper-V and this hardware support isn't 100% perfect on OpenBSD. I think that was the case when this was written and less the case now. Uh, and we'll need to disable a couple of things so they show you how to do that. And then step four was add a host-only network adapter to the VM. So this makes a connection from your host computer into the VM. Uh, and that's now how you're going to have your computer connect to the internet. Uh, and so they configure that with a static IP address and set it up uh, in OpenBSD. Then they add a bridged adapter to the VM. So this will connect your physical network interface on your host computer into the VM. And the physical adapter on your host computer is unconfigured in Windows, so Windows can't use it to get to the internet. Uh, but now your OpenBSD VM will be able to get to the internet. Oh, there we go. Yes. Uh, then uh, step six is to connect your network uh, in the host OS. So this is configuring OpenBSD to, to have your IP address and so on. Uh, and then step seven is to install the squid package. This is an open source web proxy. Uh, and so they show that's pretty simple. Just package add squid, uh, set the squid flags and start the service. Uh, and now we can use this service uh, for a limited selection of uh, safe and trusted programs. Uh, so we'll configure those to be able to connect via the OpenBSD machine. Mm -hmm. And then finally, configure the software we actually want to connect to the internet to use that proxy. So in this case, you're actually purposely not configuring the OpenBSD as a router. So it won't pass or NAT packets from the host-only adapter through to the internet. Only connecting through the proxy uh, will actually allow you to get to the internet because then the connection is actually initiated by the proxy software in the OpenBSD VM. So you're not actually forwarding traffic on OpenBSD. Uh, so they show how to configure Firefox, Chromium, Subversion, etc. And uh, that's it. Now you've created this VM that gates all of your internet access. Just to play Candy Crush? Uh, no, okay. in this case, it's to not allow Windows to install Candy Crush. Yeah, yeah, and Phone Home and all the other interesting things that are in Windows 10. Yes, yeah, uh, but in, in general, they were mostly after disabling the automatic updates uh, because mm -hmm. they need to test with an unupdated version, or in particular, they don't want their tests to suddenly have different results because a Windows update has installed itself and changed the meaning of what they were looking at. Yeah. And I mean, the, the setup in general could be used for other operating systems similar that where OpenBSD bridges the network into 
uh, the, the virtual machine. Yeah, yep. so straightforward, not too difficult, I guess, with, with the provided yeah, examples. You could do the same with FreeBSD or NetBSD as well. Yep. The software is there, Squid is available. So, yeah, try it yeah, out. Uh, it's, it's even more straightforward and more the same, actually, uh, on different operating systems because you're not doing a router. You're just doing a proxy. So install the proxy software, start it, and maybe there's a little bit of configuration. But um, it's actually one of the times where it's almost the same on all the different BSDs, uh, whereas configuring routing maybe is a little bit different. Yeah, and then you look what kind of connections are being established and you wonder, this is needed to run an operating system? But yeah. A uh, different discussion here. Okay, so next story is about LLDB restoration and return to ptrace. This is um, over at the NetBSD blog. Remember, we covered the NetBSD's effort uh, towards a more uh, LLVM environment or more towards a, like FreeBSD did with the LLDB debugger. So they're working on that and we kept keep you updated with the newest stuff happening in there. So this is uh, another update here. So um, this is from Kamil Rutarovsky, and he writes, I've managed to unbreak the LDB debugger as much as possible. With the current kernel and hit problems with the ptrace uh, that are causing issues with further work on proper NetBSD support. Meanwhile, he's upstreamed all the planned NetBSD patches to sanitizers and helped other BSDs to gain better or initial support. So LDB is basically, uh, since the last time uh, you worked on LDB, uh, they have introduced many changes in the kernel interfaces, most notably related to the signals, that apparently fixed some bugs in Go and introduced regressions in ptrace. So part of the regressions were noted by the existing ATF tests. However, the breakage was only marked as a new problem to resolve. For completeness, the ptrace code was also cleaned up by Christos Zulas, and they fixed some bugs with Compat32. So they have a couple of examples here. Um, if you're interested in those, you can see each individual uh, differential division uh, where that was discussed. And uh, some of these are more extensive and some of them are pretty straightforward. So there are some more explanations there. Um, down there, there's a bunch of updates to the sanitizers. Um, so he writes here, uh, I suspended the development of new features in sanitizers last month, uh, but he was still in the process of upstreaming the local patches. Uh, this process was time-consuming as it required the rebasing patches, adding dedicated tests, and addressing all other quirk requests and comments from the upstream developers. And they provided a huge list of changes that landed upstream. So if you're interested in those, uh, check out the show notes or the link that we provided there. Um, he's not uh, counting on hotfixes on those as some changes were triggering build or test issues in NetBSD hosts or not NetBSD hosts, basically. Uh, thankfully, all these issues were addressed quickly. And the final result is a reduction of local data size of almost one megabyte uh, to less than 100 it's kilobytes. The, the delta, how the size yeah. of the diff between the version that works in NetBSD and the version from upstream went from over a megabyte to under 100 kilobytes. Uh, so it's only yeah. 1,200 lines now, whereas it probably was more like 12,000 lines before. Yeah, that's a nice reduction here. Mm -hmm. So uh, the remaining patches there are scheduled for later, mostly because they depend on an extra work uh, with cross-operating system tests and prior integration of sanitizers with the base system distribution. 
He didn't want to put extra work in here in the current state of affairs, and he's registered as a mentor for Google Summer of Code and NetBSD Foundation, which they are participating in again, like FreeBSD. And they prepared software quality improvement tasks in order to outsource part of the labor. So some of the user land changes in that are um, they landed in the base system tree already, and uh, some of those are uh, included um, like headers for GCC to include sanitizers or um, other things like um, a new macro or installing a certain library. That's pretty much um, what uh, user-facing changes are. He's also improved the documentation for some of the features in NetBSD described in the man pages. And these pieces of information were sometimes wrong or incomplete. And this makes covering the NetBSD system with features such as sanitizers harder to uh, understand. And there's a mismatch. There's an actual mismatch between the code and the documentation. So he fixed that. And some of the pieces of software are required. Um, to have better namespacing support these days, mostly for the POSIX standard. Uh, he's fixed a few low-hanging buff fruits there and some uh, pull-ups in NetBSD 8, which is in beta, apparently. So he thanks the developers for improving the landed code in order to ship the best solutions for users. And uh, yeah, people should definitely check it out. Uh, we've been covering it for a while, so it seems like these efforts... Uh, keep improving, so it's good to see that NetBSD is also on a path towards uh, an LLVM integration with their LLDB. And of course, as always, uh, this work was sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation. We should mention that uh, the NetBSD Foundation is a nonprofit organization and welcomes any donations to help them continue the funding projects like these and others. Uh, so basically, they support the NetBSD project and they, uh, yeah, services like this would not be possible if they uh, couldn't get donations and channel that in certain ways so that uh, projects can make efforts like these. Yeah, this uh, doesn't seem like particularly fun work that someone would volunteer to do. Yeah, you need a certain level of expertise, a high level of expertise mostly, and then you need to have the time to really dig your teeth into that and figure out what the problems are. I mean, there's a lot of help, of course, from the LLVM folks, but it's still the operating system bits at, on your side of the, uh, of the river uh, of, yep. of source that needs to be uh, addressed, and that's where the main uh, work needs to be done. So, uh, this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com and check out how you can get running with a BSD-powered VM in under 60 seconds. Yeah, quickly and easily. And if there's an outage, like uh, an hour before we recorded this show, um, they had a little um, outage, but they announced it a couple of days before. They said, here... This is um, a mitigation that's needed for Spectre and Meltdown fixes, and they announced when they would happen. And my machine went down for a few minutes, but it went up again, and it's running like it ever has. And this is great stuff. So basically what you get from DigitalOcean is a little droplet, your own virtual machine in the cloud. And this droplet can be started within seconds. It's not even 60 seconds that sometimes need to start that thing. I think, I think uh, 55 seconds is the worst case. The, the current speed that they have, yeah. And it provides you with a basic operating system or some pre-installed applications where you can say, oh, I want to have a little um, uh, blogging software installed already or I want to run MongoDB or some other interesting software that you want to run in the cloud. 
So that's mostly, most popular software is prepared already, so you don't have to figure out how to install those. And you just have to configure your specific bits for your installation, and then you can run it and use it. Um, and it, sa it saves a lot of time setting those up. And it pro also provides you with an API if you want to programmatically control your little droplet and say, oh, I don't want to just not run once. I want to run tens, hundreds of those for just a few minutes or an hour or so and then shut them all down again programmatically. That's also possible with the DigitalOcean API. Another cool thing is that they have a nice community page where people can uh, find tutorials for certain things, uh, not only how to do things in DigitalOcean, but in general, like how to create a... Um, uh, what do we have? A memcache server, I'm looking here, or a Redis installation on a certain operating system. So that's interesting if you want to not only learn how to use the DigitalOcean uh, environment, but also uh, what other people, because these um, are contributed documentation and people get a little bit of money for those if they are published. And so that way, uh, DigitalOcean also gives something back to the community um, and if you're interested in starting your own DigitalOcean cloud, use our coupon code FreeBSDNow when you register your VM, and that gives you a $10 credit. And with that, you can already run a couple of hours on our bill and to try out certain services or you want to check out the latest version of FreeBSD, whatever you want. Uh, it's quick and easy, and it provides you a couple of features, and you get to know the DigitalOcean uh, environment and how they manage their uh, virtual machines called droplets. So uh, staying with NetBSD, we have a story here that's called working with the NetBSD kernel, which is interesting. We always get a bunch mm -hmm. of requests. Hey, we want to learn more about development and operating systems and applications are interesting, but operating system work is a whole different area and we want to learn more about those. So here is a little bit about that. Yes, uh, so when working on complex systems, like an operating system kernel, uh, your attention span and cognitive energy are too valuable to be wasted on uh, inefficiencies pertaining to ancillary tasks. So after experimenting with different environmental setups on kernel debugging, some of them uh, were awkward and distracting from our main objective, uh, I have arrived at my current workflow, which is described here. This approach is mainly oriented towards security research and the study of the internals of the kernel. Before delving into detail, here's a general outline. Uh, so they have a host system running Linux, which is an odd choice for doing BST development, but uh, it does work. Uh, and then their target system is a QMU guest. Uh, so they want to make sure your host system has a recent version of QMU with support for target architectures of your choice. The rest of this post will deal with uh, x86-64, so AMD64, uh, NetBSD guests. Also make sure your system is configured with bridge mode networking. It will make debugging and working with QMU guests much more convenient. They set up uh, GDB. Um, you'll want a version of GDB that supports uh, NetBSD's x86-64 ABI. Uh, most likely you won't find it in your platform's package repository and you'll have to get it yourself and they show you how to do that. And then set up some NFS exports to get your source code from your workstation into the VM. Uh, then you have to compile uh, NetBSD, and uh, they have some advice on doing that. Uh, chances are you do not want to use these options that they are talking about here. Uh, 
until you've successfully built the cross-compilation toolchain and your entire user land because building these takes time and there are many good reasons uh, to recompile them from scratch. Uh, and they talk a little bit about that and in particular doing it on laptops. Hmm. So they show how to check out the NetBSD source and how you go about compiling it with the build.sh script. Uh, once the build is completed, you can uh, also build an ISO image and uh, use that to install your VM. So in this case, they actually uh, installed the VM using the, uh, the ISO image they created from the installer. Uh, and they use the media, install everything except for games. And in this case, uh, they opted out of the X11 sets configured the network and the time zone and so on, enabled SSH, disabled uh, their CG, which is NetBSD's disk encryption and RAID frame, uh, made a regular user, added it to the wheel group, and uh, dropped to a shell and powered down the VM. Then booted it again without the install CD, and they would have a running uh, NetBSD system. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so they configure their uh, package system and get that going uh, and set up their NFS. And then they are going to make a custom kernel with extra debugging options uh, and get that running. Yeah, you need the debugging symbols if you want to do kernel work because otherwise you can't make out the gibberish or where the kernel sections are located and things like that. Uh, they actually are making use of dtrace on NetBSD as well, so they should oh. to get that going. Even better than yeah, to have the debug and, symbols. Uh, in this case, uh, are connecting the GDB uh, to the debugging stub in the kernel, so they can actually watch things run in the kernel. Mm -hmm. Set a breakpoint and yeah, looking at the the type of the mbuff and seeing what that looks like and you can uh, pre-print those so they're a little easier to read uh, so they mentioned uh, that they're using vim as their text editor with c tags uh, instead of grep for looking for symbols <laughs> uh, they also learn how to use uh, markers buffers and windows within vim to uh, jump around between files uh, to avoid namespace pollution they ran uh, c tags dash capital r in the root of the kernel, that is source sys, uh, instead of the root of the entire source tree, so that they only see the kernel symbols and they don't have to wade through all the user land stuff. Uh, they have a couple of options added to their vim config file. Uh, and they were using tmux to avoid losing all their open terminals when they uh, close things. And they recommend learning to use some basic dtrace dtrace scripts with the uh, function, ba function boundary tracing and syscall providers and mm -hmm. it'll save you a lot of time and effort down the road uh, and if you can't find information on specific aspects of the NetBSD kernel, check the documentation mailing list and books written by other BSD derived systems uh, you know, uh, and they provide links to for example the FreeBSD wiki's uh, dtrace one-liner tutorial which is full of a lot of uh, interesting dtrace one-liners you might want to do yeah, to just explore what the system is doing or what the output looks like, or also the debugging uh, parts where you can see how to use the GDB, uh, because that can also be helpful in application development. If you know GDB, then you can pretty much 
debug any application, whether it's the kernel or um, a user land application. So, time for the news roundup this week. We have an interesting story from the FreeBSD source repository because uh, the headline says, we add support for the experimental internet draft TCP alternative backoff, and Alan will take that away. Yes, uh, so this is uh, work by Tom Jones, who we interviewed, was that two years ago at FOSDEM? It's been a while, yeah. Uh, (laughs) A a little over a year ago at FOSDEM. So, yes, this commit uh, about eight days ago, uh, add support for the experimental internet draft TCP alternative backoff with explicit congestion notification, also known as ABE for uh, alternative backoff with explicit notification. Um, basically, it's a proposal for the new Reno congestion control algorithm module with ABE uh, reduces the amount of congestion window reduction in response to explicit congestion notification signaled congestion relative to the loss-inferred congestion response. So let me break that down for people a little bit. So, uh, New Reno is one of the TCP congestion control algorithms. It's one of the older ones from the 90s, maybe the 80s. Anyway, um, the way it tries to be fair and to have a well-working internet connection is it sends data in a, a, a window, and that window keeps getting larger Uh, as the connection seems to be going fine so that you'll send the data faster and faster. And then when you start having packet loss because you're sending data and the receiver can't receive it that fast or there's some congestion on the network somewhere, we back off the size of that window. So we grow it and then we back off. We grow it and then we back off and then we grow it and back off uh, until it settles on what is a good speed. Um. Then later, they invented a technology called explicit congestion notification, which is where the receiver will actually send you a message being like, hey, I'm receiving too much data right now. Could you back off a little bit? Yes, back off here. When the receiver asks you to slow down. Um, Whereas before, you had to just infer that they couldn't keep up by the fact that they were not acknowledging all of the data you were sending them. Mm -hmm. So with this new change... They don't shrink the window quite as much if the backoff was caused by someone explicitly asking for it rather than by packet loss. So if someone asks you to slow down, you slow down a little bit instead of backing off a lot when you suddenly the messages you're sending aren't getting through. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, there's a link in the uh, commit here to the uh, IETF's draft of this specification. Uh, if you want to try it, this implementation adds four new sysctls. The first one is uh, net.inet.tcp.cc for congestion control .abe, which defaults to zero, which is disabled. And uh, if you set it to one, it will enable the ABE functionality, the uh, alternative backoff. Um, so any TCP connection that has ECN will then use the ABE to not slow down as much when it's controlled uh, congestion rather than inferred congestion from packet loss. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, yeah, go ahead. uh, Then there's a second sysctl, which is cc.newreno.beta and newreno.beta underscore ecn. 
these set the multiplicative window decrease factor. So the way uh, Nuvino works is the amount that we back off every time that I can't get my camera right. The amount we back off every time the um, there's packet loss is multiplicative. So the more times there are packet loss, the more we back off because obviously the connection can't handle it. Or, well, that's the assumption. You know, nowadays you can get packet loss for other reasons like using mm. wireless connections. But anyway, so these uh, the beta and beta ECN set what factor is applied to um, the changes there. So it's specified as a percentage and it applied to the congestion window in response to the lost base or ECN base congestion signal. Uh, so the default values for beta is 50% and beta for ECN is eight, sorry, 80%. And so this will uh, allow the congestion control algorithm to treat those two different types of loss differently and allow you to control how much it adjusts the, uh, the window there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, you get the ABE underscore FR loss reduce, uh, which defaults to zero, which is disabled, and we set to any non-zero value to enable the use of the standard beta, which is 50% by default, uh, when repairing uh, loss during an ECN signaled congestion recovery episode an episode Ooh, yes. yeah uh, it enables a more conservative congestion response and is provided for the purposes of experimenting as a result of some discussion uh, at etf meeting number 100 which was in singapore mm -hmm. uh, in particular the values of beta and beta ecn can also be set per connection by way of some new socket uh options uh, TCP underscore CC algo opt TCP level uh, options, including CC new Reno beta and CC new Reno beta ECN. So you can set specific uh, socket options to say, for this connection, I want to be more or less conservative uh, on the congestion control. Uh huh. So, but generally, this would be more applicable for internet TCP usage rather than local network use. Or in right. general, hopefully on networks. your local network, you don't have a lot of packet loss. Yeah. Oh, hopefully, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> on on your local network is where you may be actually using more of this explicit uh, congestion notification. Mm -hmm. uh, so it it depends. Um, but it's the uh, the most use case, I guess, would be having a server on the internet uh, with experiences package loss, wherever the reason might be, and you would set this to try to mitigate that a little bit to get uh, your, you know, packets flowing better. Okay, I like those changes because, I mean, if you read um, Reno and all these, these are some of the, or actually the original TCP implementations that they did at the mm -hmm. uh, University of Berkeley back in the day. And um, I think it's nice to see uh, that these are still being polished and developed with uh, the newer networks that we now have and the higher speeds that we operate on. So TCP is also very alive and uh, being actively maintained. Yeah. Or any uh, other. It's or, it's or... really interesting how well TCP has aged, uh, considering it was developed in the 70s, or actually yeah. mostly in the 60s, I think, uh, and, and came started being used in the 70s or whatever. It's uh, amazing how well it's... Yeah. 
and it's free and it's not patented. It's like, yes, we mm. can use this without having to pay for I mean, you, of course, you have to pay some kind of fee, but not for the actual protocol to use it. It's all free and available and people can implement it. That's that for me, that is also one of the catalysts to make the Internet uh, explode like it did. Yeah, very cool. So check that out and um, yeah, give some feedback if you experience some interesting uh, side effects of that or if it solves your problems. That would be interesting to read about. Okay, uh, next up is uh, in our continuing quest to provide you with the meltdown mitigation uh, stories. Uh, well, here's I'm not one. doing the work on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, we'll cover you with uh, the news as they appear. But this time we have uh, meltdown mitigation uh, patches from OpenBSD for uh, Asus patch errata, and that is now available. So uh, here over the OpenBSD journal, we have... Um, information that the recent changes in current mitigating the meltdown vulnerability have been backported to the 6.1 and 6.2 OpenBSD releases on AMD64. And the SysPatch update is now available. So people who know SysPatch, it's quick and easy. So you have always a patch system this way and the most updated uh, version that you can get. Um, they, they quickly write, happy syspatching, and don't forget to show your appreciation by donating to the project. Yes, the OpenBSD Foundation is also taking uh, donations like that to sponsor hackathons and other work like this to make um, the OpenBSD. Yeah, and I think uh, a later article we saw, they extended support via syspatch back to 6.1. Previously, mm -hmm. syspatch only covered the newer of their two supported releases, but now supports both. Yeah. So basically, they implemented a workaround against the meltdown flaw in CPUs from Intel. And um, we also have a bunch of those changes individually uh, listed in the show notes here. Some of these are really CPU-specific, so like which registers are affected and which the uh, specifics of the CPU you have to know before making sense of the commit message. Um, but it's good to see that uh, also the OpenBSDs um, started uh, or have already backported those fixes and um, fixing those actively like they do in OpenBSD. Yeah, uh, and there's some notes in the commit messages like thanks to Alex Wilson from Joyent for early discussions about trampolines and the data requirements of that. Uh, and also the per CPU page layout was mostly inspired by Dragonfly. Ah, see, remember last week's episode? Mm -hmm. There was some discussion going on there. So it's nice to see that there's some cross-project collaboration to fix those. And I mean, there are local implementations always that the individual projects are doing, but the coordination across project is what I like to see in this um, happening more like it's already done. And uh, that way people can share their ideas and their mitigation strategies to make it um, viable for most people. And I mean, the experts discussing this is already good, um, but having people involved that actually understand what it's, what's happening is also good to have because at the end of the day, someone has to implement the mitigation that they discussed. So yeah, oh, there's a bunch of messages. So so yeah, yeah check those all out. All the commit messages are in the show notes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, this week's episode is also brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com/bsdnow and check out their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source, and find out why you should consider them uh, over whatever your current vendor is. Yeah. Um, and as if I hadn't uh, bought enough stuff. <laughs> 
yesterday ordered another machine. Oh, here we go. So how did that work with IX systems? I guess you uh, ordered that. Well, this, this one in particular, it was, hey, you know that custom design that you, you helped us come up with and we bought a whole bunch of? Uh, we need one? one more of those. <laughs> so that oh, one was pretty straightforward. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we had the whole thing sorted out in the, the afternoon there. Um, and shortly, so that's the... Uh, data center where that server will go will give me the shipping instructions and I will pass those on to IX. And then uh, as soon as the machine is built and tested and um, burned in, has, has done the burning testing to make sure that, you know, one of the hard drives isn't going to fail in the first 24 hours. Uh, Try that with your regular vendor, but that they do yeah. that, I guess mm -hmm. they won't. IX Systems does that and it's super helpful. Well, you know, with IX Systems, every machine you buy is custom built for you. It's not, you know, sitting on a shelf waiting for you to buy it. Um, and so you get the very latest everything uh, and tailored to your needs. And then uh, it gets shipped and it'll be, it'll arrive at the data center. It'll be pre-configured the way I needed it. Uh, they'll hook it up and we'll be online. It'll be pretty straightforward. Yeah. Or if you want to buy a smaller system like the Freenas Mini, if you're well, this not was, this yet. This was in... a small system. Like this is a, a little, it's like one U. Oh, right. It, it is. Ah. Long depth. Okay. Uh, no, this is a, a video transcoder. So it's it's one U short depth with a special skinny motherboard so that um, the graphics card can fit uh, since it doesn't overlap the motherboard. It actually hangs off the edge of the motherboard. Uh, oh. So it has the whole height of the one U uh, for the video card so that we get good airflow over it and so on. Ah, yeah, so that's a uh, custom-built system for the video yes, production. Uh, it's basically the use. special scale engine appliance that we designed, uh, and we've had uh, IX build, must be about 30 of them so far. Uh, and so, yeah, we just call them up and be like, we need another one, and we need another four, or we need another <laughs> 10, or whatever <laughs> it happens to be. This time it was, it was we need one, and it's going to go to, you know, Miami. Because Florida. <laughs> well, why not? And yeah. these are exactly the systems that IX Systems is building. If you need a database server with a certain memory or disk space configuration, then ask them. Or if you want to build a specific system for uh, healthcare or cloud storage provider thingies, that's something you can ask IX Systems. What kind of... Um, they will ask you a couple of questions, you know, what's the use case, what kind of software are you going to run, and then they will tailor you a system that is uh, tailored towards your needs, not something they thought would uh, fit you best by looking at the shelf and say, ah, system number five is something that we could offer. Right, yes. Um, you know, some people get a little confused. You can go to the website and they don't have a bunch of pre-built servers for you to pick from because every machine is custom built to be the best machine for your solution. You're going to solve your problem with this machine, and your problem is not going to be the same as everybody else's problem. So, but yeah, they don't make the process take longer. You know, you can still get your your server quickly and easily, and importantly, you get the best price because you're not putting any components in the server that you don't need. Yep. IX System is also doing a lot of work in the um, open source area. They also employ a couple of FreeBSD developers, and they sponsor conferences. So uh, I read on their blog that IX System sponsors the CodeStock and CodeStock Academy, which is happening April 20 to 21st. And 
yeah, that's what they do as part of their uh, giving back into the community where they take uh, open source software like ZFS to run on their uh, NAS systems. Mm -hmm. so, so that's very cool. ixsystems.com slash BSD now and get in touch with them. Tell them we sent you and they'll be extra nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, next up, we have hackathon reports from Ken Westerbeck and uh, other people, I guess. So I this, this is from just Ken. Just him? Okay. Um, so it's A2K18. This is an OpenBSD hackathon that finished uh, recently, I think. Yep. I didn't know exactly when. Um, but um, it's over at the Undeadly, and it's from the airports department. This uh, <laughs> You can see why in so a minute. <laughs> it, it opens up with just the string of airports that he went through. Uh, and uh, lucky for you guys, yeah, I've uh, translated those into... Airport codes. Uh, yes. Uh, I've translated <laughs> those for those of us who don't speak airport code. I happen to speak airport code, so I even drew us a map. So he flew Toronto to Vancouver, right? That's that's here. That's already and then yeah. to Melbourne, and then to Queenstown, and then from Queenstown to Christchurch, from Christchurch to Dundon, and that's when he had the uh, that's where the hackathon was. He did the hackathon, had fun, and then he flew from Dundon to Wellington, to Auckland, to Sydney, to Brisbane, to Vancouver, and then back to Toronto. <laughs> Wow, how many hours is that? <laughs> I don't want to know, but it's, it's a total distance wow. of 23,970 miles. Gee, that, the, the airlines will be happy, and I guess your mileage uh, will also increase a lot this way, but boy, are you not super jet-lagged like this. Ooh, wow. That's effort for an open source project. Yeah. You know, uh, just Toronto to Vancouver is 2,000 miles, and that's four in a bit hours. Yeah, and then uh, there's and then the big jump over the Pacific Ocean. 8,000 miles to go from Vancouver to Melbourne. That's a long trip. I think it's only 6,500 miles to go Toronto all the way to Tokyo. So, yeah, that's a, a big trip. It's, and then even just yeah. Melbourne to... Um, Queenstown is another 1,330 miles. <laughs> I mean, aren't you just dead? They have to drag you off the airplane because you're so sleepy? Well, I don't know that he did all this at once. Yeah, I no, no, no. I might have, might have spent <laughs> a, a couple, day of, in a couple of these places. Boy, ay, ay, ay. Okay. But yeah, it definitely um, shows the devotion. <laughs> I guess. So that's not all. Um, so it, there's actually the trip report. So it, it starts off with phew after all these airport uh, codes. Uh, once in Dundon, the hacking commenced. The background was a regular tick of a new meltdown diffs to test in addition to whether work uh, one was actually engaged in. Uh, he was lucky in that none of the problems with the various versions cropped up on his laptop. So he worked with RPE and TB at OpenBSD to make the install script uh, create the correct FQDN, the fully qualified domain name, when DH client was involved, and worked with TB on some code cleanup in various bits of the base system. DH client got some nice cleanups, uh, further pruning and improving the lock messages in particular. In addition to the oddball-q option was flipped into the more formal-v, uh, like be quiet by default and verbose on request. Uh, more substantially, the use of recorded leases was made less intrusive by avoiding the continual reconfiguration of the interface with the same information. 
the request, require and ignore DHCLIENT statements were changed so that they are cumulative, making it easier to build longer lists of affected options. And he also tweaked software a little bit to remove the hand-rolled version of DUID underscore format. And he sprinkled a couple of MW, uh, not w, M underscore weight okay into AMD64 and I386 MPBIOS to document that there is really no need to check for null being returned from some malloc calls. Then right, continue- so it, that's a, a, fl- a malloc flag. There's uh, wait okay and no wait. Uh, so in no wait, if it can't get memory right now, it returns a null and you have to check for it and deal with what happens if you can't get memory. With M wait okay, it means the malloc can sleep and wait for some memory to become available and then continue the code. Yep. Okay. Um, then he continued to test or help test the new file system quiescing logic that Teal Theodorat uh, committed during the hackathon, and he locked himself out of his room once. Oops. Uh, <laughs> fueled by the excellent coffee from local institutions, uh, the Good Earth Cafe and the Gold Oil Cafe, and the excellent hacking facilities and accommodations at the University of Otago, it was another enjoyable and productive hackathon south of the equator. And I even saw penguins. Oh, cool. Thanks to Jim uh, Cheetah and the support from the project and the OpenBSD Foundation that made it all possible. Oh, great. Yeah, that's definitely the the worth was the trip was worth it. And uh, yeah, seriously, this is certainly a good uh, amount of uh, work being done for a lot of sleepless nights probably afterwards. <laughs> Yes, I like the uh, the comment from somebody on the uh, OpenBSD journal page there. <laughs> Full marks to your travel agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sold him that, yeah. <laughs> but I, there just are no direct flights from Denden to Toronto, obviously. Yeah, no so, way. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But, yes, he had one more hop in there in a couple of places than I would have expected. But that <laughs> might have been on purpose to, you know, get to visit some of those places. Yeah, it's certainly nice to spend a couple of uh, extra days uh, before or after to unwind and uh, get back into the local time zone as much as you can and see some of the uh, places uh, where you're going. All right, next up is a bit more poetic. Uh, We have a poetic license reading for the BSD license. Yes, somebody has turned the BSD license into a poem. Okay. Uh, Let's do you start want to read it that. or do you want me to? Um, huh, it's, it's it's difficult because you have to get the rendition right and the, the, the first form. Uh, maybe you start. We'll see how. Uh, maybe I right, pick well, it up. You do the introduction then and I'll read the poem. Okay. So um, this guy or on this blog, he found um, this when going through old documents. It looks like I wrote it and never posted it. Perhaps I didn't consider it finished at the time. But looking at it now, I think it's good enough to share. It's a redrafting of the BSD license in poetic form. Maybe he had plans to do other licenses one day, uh, but he can't remember. So uh, he interleaved it with the original license text so he can see how the tune or otherwise uh, he's been to it. Uh, So enjoy. Yeah, so it starts off with the original part of the license. So if you want to read that. Yep, the copyright and the year and the owner, of course, all rights reserved, redistribution and use in source and binary forms with or without modification are permitted, provided that the following conditions are met. So converting that into a poem, you get 
you may redistribute and use as source or binary as you choose, and with some changes or without, this software let there be no doubt. But you may, uh, you must meet conditions three if in compliance you wish to be. <laughs> okay, the license continues. So pretty good. Yeah. First, uh, redistributions of source code must retain the above copyright notice, this list of conditions, and the following disclaimer. Second, redistributions in binary form must reproduce the above copyright notice in uh, this list of conditions and the following disclaimer in the documentation and or materials provided with the distribution. Third, neither the name of the, well, that was redacted on the University of Berkeley, California, way back when, uh, nor the names of its contributors may be used to endorse or promote products derived from the software without specific prior written permission. Yes, uh, you'll notice FreeBSD only uses the first two clauses and got rid of that uh, third one. And there used to be an evil fourth one called the Advertising Clause uh, that required you to include a message saying, hey, this product includes source from here. Um, but then people modified the license to change that notice to be their name or their company. And if you mm -hmm. look at NetBSD, there's a couple of places where they list over 150 different names uh, for everything that uses NetBSD, and it gets a little ridiculous. Mm. So anyway, so, uh, moving on to the poetic version of those three clauses. The first is obvious, of course, to keep this text with the source. The second is for binaries. Please, in the docs, a copy, please. Or, sorry, let me start over. I messed that one up. So, the first is obvious, of course, to keep this text within the source. The second is for binaries. Place in the docs a copy, please. A moral lesson uh, from this ode, don't strip the copyright on code. The third applies uh, when you promote, you must not take from us who wrote. Our names and make it seem as true, uh, we like or love your version too. Unless, of course, you contact us and get us, or get our written assistance. Assensus? Well, okay. Yeah, that's, I've never seen that word before. Anyway. Okay, you're the native, native speaker. <laughs> okay. Um, Next and up then comes there's the... the giant copyright block, which I won't make Benedict read uh, to save a bit of time. Yeah, basically the software is provided by the copyright holders and all that. So it says, uh, one final point to be laid out. You must forgive my need to shout. <laughs> there is no warranty for this. Whatever things may go amiss. Uh, express implied, it's all the same. Responsibility disclaimed. Uh, we are not liable for loss, no matter how incurred the cost. The type or style of damage done, wherever the legal theory spun, this still remains as true if you inform us that you plan to do, or what you plan to do. Uh, when all wow. is told, we sum up this. Do what you like, just don't sue us. That's some good pros i mean uh, it's a legal document basically and pro creating pros out of that you first need to think about that and yeah. then wow uh, and they cool pretty much did it all without changing the meaning although i don't think you get away with actually using the poem text as the license yeah next time you uh, not a good idea up... don't do that don't do that <laughs> yeah but maybe the next iteration would be a song or some kind of uh rendition um, with more practice, somebody could sing this, <laughs> not me. Yeah, we'll find someone at a conference maybe and uh, hold a microphone and <laughs> just <laughs> try not to laugh. Excellent. Yeah, so you can see it's interesting what you can find on the internet.
So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have, like we announced last week, the Asia BSDCon 2018 videos available on YouTube. Thanks to yes. the efforts uh, of a certain person. Yes, I will uh, even hint that if you look around on there, the BeehiveCon videos are up as well. Uh, but we'll cover that next week uh, in our continued <laughs> effort to spread out the love. Yeah. Yep, uh, so there's the opening uh, Dexter's talk about... Uh, Isolation and Virtualized Hosts and uh, all the other talks from AJBSDCon are there, including the work-in-progress session at the end. So that's uh, uh, another 20 videos for you to watch. Have fun. Yeah. So we were there live, but yes. watching the videos is uh, well, a good second um, thing. Just by definition, I could have only seen like 12 of these 20 videos because uh, the rest were running concurrent. Yeah. Uh, so anyone where it says like A and B, there was an A and a B, and you couldn't be in the same place at once. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I think there was one session I missed because I stayed out to lunch too late. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think another one where I got busy talking about ZFS with uh, Jorg Lundman. Yeah, uh, check it out. Good stuff. Uh, I, I there. definitely watched some of those because uh, I had the same problem. And yeah, definitely check those out. And um, yeah, that, then you are on the latest uh, BSD conference, what, what has been discussed there. Uh, next up is the January, February 2018 FreeBSD Journal available. So it covers a couple of headlines uh, or content in general. Uh, there's a review of storage multipathing. So the storage is the main topic for this uh, edition. Uh, there's uh, a giant font. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, another one is tapes not dead, uh, tracing if config commands. Uh, there's a letter from the FreeBSD Foundation. We have a conference report, uh, book review you should check out, an SVN update as always, and the events calendar to see what's happening in the BSD area in the next couple of months. Yes. I think there was supposed to be one more, but that was my fault. I was, uh, I wrote it and had it already, and then I guess I thought I sent it and didn't. <laughs> uh, well, it's just but it'll be in the next one. Next one. Yeah, it, it's not lost, and this storage issue already has a couple of good things in there, so it's um, uh, subscription uh, still. Um, maybe we'll change this during the year, but um, currently you anyway, can get uh, yes. it. Check it out. You, there's the desktop edition, so you can uh, just view it on your desktop computer uh, and it works on FreeBSD or um, there's also versions for your iPad or Android or um, other, other mobile devices of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's Amazon, Google and Apple e-stores. Yeah, and if you subscribe, uh, some of the uh, money you pay there will be used in the FreeBSD Foundation for good use. Okay, next story is uh, the Package Source 2017 Quarter 4 release is being announced. And here we have the announcement text. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's new? A couple of updates, I guess. Ah, here we go. In total, 220 packages were added, 225 packages were removed, and 1,701. I totally read this at... 17 i have this star trek as yeah association now with yeah anyway uh 1701 package updates were done uh to uh 11,040 
five unique packages were processed since the package source 2017 quarter three release. And among them, um, a lot of Perl packages, Python, Ruby, and Erlang. Uh, Postgres 10 is available, which is nice. PHP 7.2, LLDB 5.0.0, Rust and Firefox 57.0.2. And they also say goodbye to Emacs 22, 23, 24, because 25 is current and 21 remains. Uh, KDE 3 is gone. GDB 5 and 6, and Firefox 10 through 38. Oh, wow. A lot of old stuff being done. They, they had all 28 versions in between that range? Apparently. Well, people well, use those. Selection. <laughs> yeah. And remember, package uh, source is not just NetBSD. It's available on many other systems, so everyone that's using package source can benefit from those updates. So check it yes. out. Uh, also, they've put you on notice that this is the last quarter in which they will include Apache 2.2, you should use 2.4. Yeah, it's been out for a while now, a couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, um, this one you'll have to translate because it's not in English. Sure. Uh, so this is the BSD user group in Hamburg. This is uh, north of Germany, as many people know. And this is basically, they have a little homepage. The user group has been meeting for a couple of years now. And they have, um, it's basically a loose um, meeting or gathering of um, uh, BSD Unix people that are using NetBSD, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, Dragonfly, and BSD slash, well, BSD OS. And they meet, uh, I think, once a month. And uh, I think it's a Chinese restaurant. And um, never been there before, but um, maybe when I get the chance to go to Hamburg one day, then um, I'll drop by. They have... um, they also post their meetings on the, uh, I think it's FreeBSD chat mailing list. And it's basically the same um, restaurant for years. So you can find them relatively easily, I think. And uh, yeah, if you're in the Hamburg area, then why not go to those meetings? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the website is in uh, German only. But um, I think, yeah, the announcements are in uh, English uh, as far as I can remember. Yeah. Well, you Otherwise, must, uh, what's the date of the next meeting? Uh, the next one will be, uh, I just had it, ah, uh, April 4th, so that's soon after uh, Easter, and uh, I think they meet every every month, yeah, so I don't know how many people are going, but I think it's enough to uh, sustain the group cool. for years. Very nice, so um, go to that one. Next one is the ZFS user conference we want to inform you about, so that's yes. yours, item. <laughs> yes, uh, so there's in three weeks coming up on April 19th and 20th is the ZFS user conference. So uh, this one is targeted mostly to people that use ZFS and are interested in what's happening and uh, talking to developers about what they would like to see happen and sharing things with other users and just generally hanging out with other people that want to talk about ZFS. Guess who's going and speaking? I don't know. Oh, me? Okay. Uh, so it's... Uh, Sponsored by Circonus and Micron, uh, there will be keynote talks from Matt Ahrens, who is the co-creator of ZFS, and Tom Caputi, who did the um, native encryption for ZFS work. Uh, there will also be a series of other presentations, including uh, the first one will be Matt Ahrens' keynote about flexible disk use with OpenZFS, which I think will be the RAID Z expansion, so adding extra disks to your existing VDEV. 
and then uh, Calvin Hendricks Parker uh, from BSD Can, you may have met him there uh, previously, uh, is talking about ZFS at his company, Six Feet Up. Uh, and then there's a talk from OS Nexus, uh, one from Micron, which is a company that makes memory and flash. So I'm sure they'll have interesting things to say. Um, then some more system and focus content uh, talking about considerations for your pool layout. Uh, and then also the ZFS on Linux team will be giving a presentation about the releases uh, and how they're handling that uh, for Linux. Uh, and then Tom Caputi is doing a section at the end called Helping Developers Help You, uh, which hopefully will have lots of useful input from users. Uh, and then on the second day, there'll be a talk about ZFS and MySQL on Linux and the sweet spots. And, uh, you know, there'll be a bunch of interesting stuff there. And then I will talk about Z standard compression uh, and a bit about that. And then uh, there'll be a closing one uh, talking about thank you ZFS and how that worked uh, for different people that have used it. Uh, and then there'll be lunch and then I think we'll have kind of a free time for the afternoon there to uh, just converse between the group of us. Oh, yeah. So uh, this will take place at Dado's headquarters. So Dado's a, a backup company that uses ZFS, uh, and they're uh, headquartered in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, which is not too far from New York. Uh, so I'm actually flying to New York and then going up there. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have uh, links here to... A couple of hotels that are, uh, I think these first two are less than a five-minute walk from the venue, so that will work out nice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope to see a lot of people interested in ZFS at the conference. Yeah, especially users. I mean, you go to the developer uh, summit uh, they have, but also the user perspective well, is also in good particular, to hear about. Um, the developer summit, because of where it's held, is very strictly limited to 100 people. Uh, so they have to be very careful, of, you know, making sure we get the, the 100 people that are going to make the biggest impact on that conference. Uh, but we really don't like excluding the users. And there's a lot of value in actually hearing from the users. Uh, and so that's why we have this user conference. And we hope to hear lots of people. Uh, I know that I've learned a lot and other people have learned a lot just by talking about different uh, problems or solutions they've had with ZFS. Uh, you know, mm. ZFS has so much depth to it. It's very easy to not realize that there's actually a feature that solves your problem and you just didn't know how to use it or that it was there. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. And how some of these new developments are changing things. Um, like the new uh, import improvements, I helped someone on IRC recover a pool that was broken uh, oh. and would just panic the system when you tried to import it previously. And now they were able to import it read-only and replicate all their data off and not lose anything. Ah, excellent. Yeah. Um, and we'll make sure and, to ask you how it was when you're back. And for example, um, the the talk before mine is about ZFS and MySQL or MariaDB. Either one would be both the same. Um, well, when you take all that knowledge and then apply, say, my talk with the Z standard compression, and all of a sudden um, the compression you're getting is higher. So compress the cache data that's stored in RAM that is compressed is now compressed at three or four or five X instead of just two or three X. 
uh, means that that much more data can be cached in the same amount of RAM. And it turns the traditional uh, information from Oracle on how to tune MySQL and ZFS to work together on its head. Previously, you wanted to cache um, everything in SQL and have ZFS get out of the way. But that can be turned on its head when you now suddenly can store three or four or five times as much data in the cache if you cache it in ZFS. Mm -hmm. And that accelerates your database significantly. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Um, so will those, will those be recorded, the talks? Um, they were last year, or so I would assume so. Okay. Good. Then we'll have something to cover in a future episode. All right. Uh, last but not least is the Unreal Engine 4 being brought natively to FreeBSD by independent developer. So this is over at Pharonix. Uh, it's a short piece, but nevertheless exciting. Uh, it reads, while FreeBSD has a Linux compatibility emulation layer that allows it to run some Linux games, an independent community developer has been working on porting Epic Games Unreal Engine 4 to FreeBSD. FreeBSD developer Malavon has been porting the Unreal Engine 4 game, uh, the engine, to FreeBSD and in the process getting most of the tech demos and code samples to build. While this is being an unsanctioned port, support isn't destined for Epic Games' official code base, but is available via developer's personal repo. The test target has been FreeBSD 11.1 AMD64. And more details can be found in the uh, FreeBSD forum thread, and Pharonix uh, will probably, uh, or who tipped the, the reader who tipped us uh, off on Pharonix uh, to do this work was able to try it and confirm they're in fact working. Yeah, so... Um... I don't know how this would apply to bigger existing games, uh, but if you were trying to develop a game, suddenly being able to do it on FreeBSD is very interesting. Uh, but in this one, it's... Uh, so the, the Unreal Engine is a toolkit used to build video games, and it comes with a bunch of sample, uh, like not whole video games, but sections of video games, like a shooter demo or an infiltrator demo or a platformer game and so on, um, or a strategy game or vehicle game. Uh, and they've got most of those demos working under FreeBSD, which suggests if they got something major working, then maybe even Unreal would accept the patches upstream if they weren't that big, and then all those Unreal-based games could natively uh, run on FreeBSD rather than having to go through Linux emulation. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, if we hear something new about this, then we'll keep you updated on that. Well, what you also should keep updating on is your backups because uh, our feedback and questions section is uh, sponsored by Tarsnap. And the Tarsnap folks are the people who keep your data secure, not only secure, but paranoidly secure in a way that they encrypt everything that you want to back up locally first before putting it into the cloud. And then... No one can read it there because in the cloud, you don't know how many people have access to the data, but since it's encrypted, they cannot read the actual files. So you're the person holding the encryption key or decryption key, actually. If you want to get your files back, you can pull them down from the cloud and um, at a very low price for a Tarsnap, you can get your files back and they also uh, deduplicate it so you don't use that much storage as you originally had. So this way, Tarsnap provides you with a nice backup option 
and it has a bunch of clients for general operating systems that you would typically use, Windows even, and the Linuxes, and the FreeBSDs, or the other BSDs as well. So it's a very nice solution you should try out. And um, if you want to learn more, there's a bunch of information about it on the website. There's also a book being written by Michael W. Lucas, Tarsnap Mastery. And if that doesn't get you started, we don't know which is. Yeah, but it's uh, very straightforward. You just basically end up creating a virtual tar archive that's in the cloud. The big important thing, encrypted on your machine first. So no government or, or Facebook can look at your data. <laughs> it's you know even even if Colin was evil, which he isn't, even if he was, <laughs> because of the architecture of it, it's uh, not possible. Even for and the people who wrote that. Don't yeah. take our word for it. Don't take Colin's word for it. Look at the source code because you get it. What other backup client gives you the source code? Yeah. Who? How many easy. other vendors do that? None. Because it only costs five dollars to get started. You should have done it already. We're backup shaming you because you haven't done it. <laughs> yeah. Each other week you haven't done it. Okay, um, on to our questions for this week uh, that got sent to us at feedback at bsdnow.tv. So here we have our first one. It's Philippe. Uh, it's titled, I heart FreeBSD and other questions. So I get that heart means love, which is uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, well, so the thing uh, Microsoft had been doing a bunch. So I don't know if they're referring to that or something else. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so he writes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. Many thanks for the continued excellence of BSD Now. Oh, thank you. Uh, he's been an IT nerd for many years, having climbed up the seven circles of Dante. Oh, wow. Windows being the pit of the pit. Well, of course. And having had a paradigm shift, uh, he can see the glory of the golden light on the horizon. Ooh, yeah. That's certainly a nice reference. Sadly, uh, he doesn't get to use FreeBSD on a regular basis, but has given himself a little project in terms of presenting iSCSI volumes. And after many weeks of frustration with the target daemon in Linux uh, with random reboots, uh, his FreeBSD sandbox NAS was up and serving in less than 30 minutes. Uh, my only Googling was for the CTL configuration. The rest was intuitive, and my face still aches from aches from the smile of sheer pleasure in getting something up and running without the usual messing about. See, that's exactly what I had, and that's what made me switch. I got much more stuff done on uh, one, and working on FreeBSD than on the system I was previously on. Uh, anyway, that aside, I do have a question regarding Zvols and compression. Without shift, uh, wishing to go into too much detail, if I present a ZFS volume, format it with XFS, I know, I know, uh, does ZFS still compress? Again, the thanks answer is yes, uh, because it does it at the block level. Now, you have to look at your record size because that will control how big of a chunk it compresses at once. Larger record sizes will get better compression, but have right amplification problems. You know, if you have the record size of 128K and XFS has a block size of 16K, when it modifies 16K in the middle, it's going to have to read all 128K, modify the middle, recalculate the checksum, and write the whole 128K. So if you do three uh, sequential chunks of the same 128K in a row, but do it synchronously, you're going to read 128, read 128, read 128, and write, 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 and it's going to make it worse. Um, but yes, uh, ZFS will still compress it, but you'll want to be uh, careful with the record sizes. 
uh, because more complicated when you compress, because now that 16K block of XFS compresses down to, say, 6K. So only ends up taking up a f an 8K block on disk. And so a second block of XFS maybe gets crammed in there and it gets lots of interesting. But yes, compression will still work. Yeah, uh, but in general, the higher the com, uh, not the com yeah, the compression, of course, but the higher the record size is better. Yes, or not because you're taking more yeah. data to compress at once, and so it has more duplicates it can remove. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, two more questions in here. Uh, the first one, Solaris ZFS had set share iSCSI options, uh, or D1 option. Will this mm -hmm. be ported to FreeBSD, or is it in a case of ZFS create dash capital V, and then configuring this in CTL? Um. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think even Illumos got rid of the share iSCSI option. I would like to bring it in on FreeBSD, but it's just a matter of having a reasonable interface for ZFS to configure CTL for us. Um, the way we do NFS right now is terrible, uh, and I'd want to fix that first, and then mm -hmm. I also have something where we can configure CTL somehow reasonably. Um, but yes, that's... Um, if you see my slides back from the FreeBSD Storage Summit in 2017, uh, this is one of the specific issues I brought up is getting share iSCSI and also maybe share SMB uh, integrated and working nicely on FreeBSD so that you can take away lots of the complexity. Hmm. Yeah, but in general, as you have already uh, tried out, the uh, iSCSI in FreeBSD is quick and easy, so... It's nice to have it in ZFS, of course, all in under one hood, um, but using it, uh, another tool that also works is you still have the, the functionality of ZFS available. Uh, second question, um, VMware tools, shared folders, uh, will this happen or is it permanently deprecated? Unfortunately, the sandbox thing he's working on has to run on any client and settings or setting up NFS and Samba is comprising his <laughs> apathy. Uh, I want people to be able to access stuff and the developers will not want to enter a username password and the users will not know how to enter a username password. Um, I just saw a bunch of VMware commits go into FreeBSD to improve FreeBSD on VMware. So maybe there's hope. Yeah, you never know. Um, um, the more... at, at this point, VMware is actually making direct commits to FreeBSD. Uh, to improve FreeBSD guest experience, so maybe. Yeah, but I have also... no other knowledge about VMware. Um, I don't remember if uh, Modi managed to get the um, the VMCI interface the, we recently got the virtual box version of shared folders working. Mm. I know he had it working for a little bit, but I don't know if it uh, ended up working out or not. Yeah. Uh, I need to look at that because I might need it from my course. Um, but if someone knows uh, or has better experience, then let us know and we'll make a follow-up uh, section here to that question. Okay, that's for that letter we got. Uh, the next one is from Cyrus, um, titled BSD Now is Excellent. Oh, wow, you're really giving us the praise now. Um, so that reads, I want to thank you for putting the time into, production, into producing this great show. I'm in a high level. No, wait. One more time. I'm in high school in Vermont, and I really love computers and programming, mainly C and a little C++. You're very inspiring people, and I'm making a hardcore Linux user more and more interesting or interested in trying BSD. Uh, I was curious about what you think the advantages of a BSD would be for home Linux user like him. Uh, thanks again. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, once you learn things, it's not going to change out from underneath you. Uh, that's a big thing. Um, there's a lot of reuse. It's more that there's... It's laid out in a way that's much easier to wrap your head around. It's much easier to understand what's going on. Uh, and it's a much nicer community to get involved in. You know, if you want to do more than just use it and actually get into it and doing programming, uh, it's a very nice group of people to actually learn from. Yeah. Uh, my take on that is it's very integrated, so you don't have to hunt in the internet which operating system I'm, I'm running or which distribution, and does it still apply? You can find everything in one piece, whether it's in the man pages or on one web page, the FreeBSD handbook, where you can find already a lot of information. Even I go back to this page after years looking something up, and I don't need to do a Google search first because I know it's in there. I just need to jump to the right article uh, or to the handbook chapter that I want to, to read. And things like that. You don't have to scour for the information. It's all more centralized in one place. And again, it's written by the people who wrote the operating system, not some uh, other people. Um, well, there's a lot of other people documenting stuff as well. But the people who write the operating system are also the people who write the kernel, the libraries, and the user land utilities. So it's all integrated in one piece. You get a coherent system, whereas in Linux is recently, uh, was it at a conference where we said there are as many Linux users as Linux distributions? And that's certainly true because, you know, there's this wild growth of distribution, which is necessarily bad if you want to pick uh, and choose certain things. But sometimes it's a bit overwhelming and having a few BSDs, whether it's FreeBSD or OpenBSD, NetBSD, have similar um, centralized information or have similar uh, structures. It's a much more uh, one-shop go-to solution than, oh, I need to go here and figure out how this tool works and over here I need to figure out how that tool works and, oh, I can't compile it on my system because it's giving me some library errors. In FreeBSD, you just, in, in just ports, you just do package install or make install in the ports directory and it works. The nice because thing, people, uh, so packages are great and I love them, but the nice thing about ports is it'll compile against the version of libfoo that you have. Yeah. Whereas the package is like, no, this was compiled for libfoo 2.7.14. You need to have that version. For ports, mm. you'll be like, ah, you have 2.7.12. I can work with that. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Done. Yeah. You don't need to yeah. find the package repository yeah, you can, first. You don't have to compile anything on FreeBSD. You can do FreeBSD without ever looking at a compiler. But... If you want it, it is there. Yeah, um, you're not excluded. If you want to more do more high-level stuff, then you can use that. But you can also keep it very simple and just run your desktop and use certain applications and only go to the uh, shell occasionally if you need to. But yeah, it's it's okay. small Let's things get on like to that. The next question. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, thank you. Hope we can help. Uh, and if you do use BSD and get stuck do write to us and we'll try to help you out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keep up the, the effort. All right, um, next up is Architect uh, with uh, combined feedback. Oh, wow. Um, it starts with, hey, Benedict, JT, and Alan. Loving the show as always. I just wanted to send in a few things to make sure they were on uh, your radar. Uh, Zephyrosa Zihao, I think it's pronounced, yes, published uh, a 
mostly just known as Cephi. I uh, don't Cephi. know if you saw that they were at Asia BSDCon giving a talk about one about Dragonfly and one about uh, FreeBSD. Oh, yeah, I, I went to the other one in parallel, but I watched the video. Um, okay, so um, that uh, was, oh, there's a PDF available. We have a link here uh, regarding the network performance impact of Spectre meltdown mitigations in Dragonfly BSD. Yeah, that was that's fairly recent at Asia BSDCon. Mm -hmm. So there's also a related mailing list entry, and uh, I'm unsh I'm sure you're aware, but I'm not sure if it was mentioned on the most recent show. Uh, since uh, I joined the stream late, uh, Sci-Fi, yeah, that's the name, announced the Hi-Fi something Unleashed Risk Five uh, 64-bit SBC, which unlike the Hi-Fi One, is suitable for porting and testing operating system and full software builds. Since FreeBSD already has a working Risk Five build, if I'm remembering the previous show correctly, yes, you do. This is especially exciting because, yeah, because being able to have a physical board, you can run Risk Five BSD builds on the provided boards. And as for some yes, shameless uh, self promotion, <laughs> here we go. We should uh, ask some of the people doing Risk Five stuff uh, if they've gotten one of these yet and tried it, and how approachable is it for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and for the self uh, promotion part, uh, I've taken some inspiration from Dan's FreeBSD diary, and I'm recording my Dragonfly BSD, Harden BSD, and OpenBSD projects on Exile.digital with uh, HTTPS. W, uh, yeah, Exile.digital slash Dragonfly underscore diary, and also slash Steel underscore journal, and also oh, wow, uh, Fugu underscore files. So that's probably OpenBSD. Mm -hmm. So cool. That's good to have more documentation for people to read up on. Uh, still pretty sparse, but growing. Yeah, cool. I mean, Dan even started his diary a couple of years ago with just the first entry, and it kept growing. Oh, yes. Uh, well, Dan started his, like, oh, eons not ago. 20 years ago, but like 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a while. Yeah. But eventually, but, but, you know, Dan's stuff half the time is just his own notes to his future self. Uh, but making those available to everybody is a huge public service, and uh, I'm glad to see more people doing it. Yeah. So Architect closes with, thanks for all you do for the show. Love the way you've been able to cover so much of that's going on in the BSD projects and communities. Cool. Thanks for those uh, links, and uh, people are interested, and check out the diaries of him. And next up is Dale with ZFS on Linux moving to ZFS on FreeBSD. Ooh, that's interesting. So let's look at that one. Uh, that one goes, hello, Alan and Benedict. I really like BSD now and look forward to each episode. Thank you. Uh, I've been using ZFS on Debian for 10 months and Linux in general since 1996. I also have been using OpenBSD since 2000. I currently have six one terabyte Western Digital red drives. Uh, they are in a striped mirrored VDEF, three drives with three mirrors. They contain the media for the Plex server. And I really like ZFS and been wanting to try FreeBSD. I use the striped set for better read performance. I have multiple copies of the media, so a disk failure is not a problem, other than replacing the disk and the hassle of copying two terabytes of data. Uh, my plan is to use my current striped set. I want to create another Z pool with larger drives for future expansion. Can ZFS on FreeBSD read my set created on Linux? So yes, you do have to be careful. The very newest version of ZFS on Linux has support for a, a, a new feature flag called large D nodes, which is really only a thing on Linux. It doesn't really make sense on the Lumos and, and FreeBSD. 
Uh, and so it's not available there yet. So you have to be careful not to create uh, your pool with feature flags that aren't supported across the majority of OpenZFS platforms. Uh, but if your pool is created 10 months ago, then yes, it should be able to just import on FreeBSD and be good to go. That's fairly recent, yeah. Uh, it goes on. If it cannot, what is the best configuration for my six drives? If I create a RAID set 2, I would gain one terabyte of space and have two parity drives, as I understand it. My concern with that is my read performance compared to striping. Now, uh, it depends which kind of read performance. If you're doing sequential reads, like reading a file in order, like playing a video, um, there's not going to be much difference. Uh, in fact, if you have three stripe drives, uh, it means that... Well, I guess now you still read from all of them, but... Um, you probably aren't going to get much difference in performance uh, going to the RAID Z2. It's not going to be much worse, if at all worse. Um, whereas if you're doing random reads, like if you were hosting a bunch of VMs and they were going to be reading from different files and different places in the images all the time, then the more VDEVs would give you more IOPS uh, and more operations per second and more random performance. But for sequential performance for... Um, media files, then uh, RAID Z2 would be perfectly fine. That's what I use in my home NAS, and it can read six or 800 megabytes a second. Uh, and, you know, my network isn't that fast. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the use case, what the <clears throat> pool should run on or what the pool yes. is running. Uh, and the other thing is you mentioned having a separate pool. Um, yes, you can do that, but Sometimes it's nice to have all your space in one place, and that's kind of the point of ZFS. Um, so, but since you can't remove VDEVs and so on, it might make sense uh, to have two separate pools. But, um, for example, my home NAS now is the original six three terabyte drives, and then a second VDEV of six five terabyte drives. Um, okay. But you know, mm. I have that flexibility. Yeah, I guess home use would probably use more. Um, I mean, it's good that you focus on the um, enough having enough parity. So if one disk dies, then you're not in, in trouble yet. Uh, so that's already good. But it really depends on are you watching videos on those or are you yeah. running but VMs? The other, so... the other reason I do recommend doing these mirror sets, like multiple sets of mirrors, mm. is when you want to grow it, you can add just two or three disks at a time, uh, depending if you do two or three deep mirrors. Uh, whereas with RAID Z, you're looking at adding six disks at a time, which can be much more complicated for a home setup. And expensive. So, yeah. Even though you know you don't get as much usable space necessarily, having the flexibility of being able to just add two drives at a time, and eventually you're going to be out of space in the chassis or uh, SATA ports on the motherboard, then you just you can upgrade, say, two of those one terabyte drives to five terabyte drives. Um, mm -hmm. And once you've replaced all the sides of a mirror, then it you can expand it and you get the extra space. So you can do that if you if you if you have six disks and you do uh, three sets of two, right? Three mirrors that are too deep, and you're striping across them, then you know you have three terabytes of usable space. But if you upgrade two of those disks to five terabyte disks, now you have seven terabytes of usable space immediately. Whereas if it was a RAID Z2, you'd have to upgrade all six disks before you would get the extra space. 
Oh yeah, that's that's an and expensive that's operation for for home. Even though in the end it's not as cost effective and so on, uh, the flexibility you get from being able to do that at home, I do like mirrors for home. Uh, of course, now with the uh, now with the RAID Z expansion coming later this year. Uh, you'd be able to just say add two more drives one at a time, but uh, add two drives to the end of your RAID Z. Of course, there's still going to be one terabyte, so it's not going to help you that much uh, compared to with the mirrors. You could add a fourth set of mirrors if you have room for eight drives with the two five terabyte drives. So, yeah. But what I like about this is that a couple of years ago, this was only possible in a you know commercial setting or in a really data center setting. And now these kind of setups are more in the reach of customers or in mm-hmm. like consumers, and they necessarily don't have experience with those large numbers of drives and the combinations you can do with them. But ZFS gives that uh, to pretty much everyone to experiment with. And oh, let's buy five drives and or six drives and see what kind of combinations I could get to save my data at home because they have basically the same needs. They want to keep the data secure and they want to have a certain level of performance out of those. And this is just amazing to see that how ZFS transformed that. Anyway, so thanks uh, yeah, for watching. Keep watching. And um, yeah, hope we answered your question. So last but not least is Tommy about a new BSD user group in Finland. Um, this one goes, hi all. Firstly, thanks for the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, I attended a few EuroBSD conferences and had a great time. Same here. Uh, only downside for these is that they only happen once a year. Yeah, that's true. Other bigger BSD conferences are happening in other continents, which naturally makes traveling much more expensive. Yes, it does, but we have the FreeBSD Foundation Travel Grant, for example. Um, going on. Uh, yeah, then but we can't about... give that to every person in Finland. Yeah, <laughs> as much as we like to. Yeah, well, we had much bigger <laughs> uh, funds that way. But yeah, well, try it anyway. So, but then thought about joining a local BSD user group to scratch my BSD tech talking itch. Then I realized that the closest one is over 400 kilometers or 250 miles away. Not acceptable. So did the second easiest thing and started a new BSD user group. Woo! Yes, so in the beginning of 2018, I announced the creation of a new BSD user group. Oh, that's excellent. Spent a few days thinking of the BSD user group name with my colleague. In the end, went with the very first idea. So we decided to go with a very BSD-themed Hellbug. So it's H-E-L-B-U-G. Oh, cool. As the capital of Finland is Helsinki, and the plan is to operate within the main capital region... Oh, yeah. Bigger cities are uh, easier to run a bug on, I think, because it attracts more people, because you never know how many people are lurking. A bigger pool of people to draw from, and it's usually easier to get around in big cities as well. Yeah, and especially in Helsinki, I can't think that there are already uh, uh, similar efforts going on. But yeah, um, so we had our first meeting February 7th with a handful of BSD enthusiasts. Excellent. Our second meeting is scheduled to be on the 17th of April. Okay, great. So people in so Finland... It's coming up in a little over two weeks, so you should uh, make plans to go if you're in Helsinki. Yeah. Details of the location and how to sign up are always at helbug.fi or fi uh, or F-I. at... fi, yeah. Well, I just had to... <laughs> okay, uh, the, the German version. Um, so, or at the Twitters at hellbsd user group. 
So hope to see more BSD curious people attending. Yeah, great. So um, I enjoyed Finland last year when I was in Olu, and I totally um, yeah endorse this BSD user group happening in the birthplace of the Linux kernel. So yeah, <laughs> why not? Excellent. Yeah, let us know uh, how this goes. Maybe little report how the last session went or some notes maybe so that would be nice to cover in the show so that other people see that it's not difficult to start a bsd user group if you think you're the only person in your city just start a bsd user group and see who shows up maybe it's your neighbor who's using the same operating system who knows uh anyway yeah um, i've I've wondered the the guy (laughs) down the street his custom license plate on his truck is dbus guy Oh, oh, here we go. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm hoping there's a non-Linux explanation for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, otherwise, there will be trouble in the street. No uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. But that's a nice way of ending this episode of BSD Now. Uh, as always, send us questions, comments, uh, blog posts you find interesting uh, to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll cover it in a future episode. Thanks for watching.